You can turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Our focus will be on verses 10 to 17. I'll read from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you again for this time to gather for corporate worship. We thank you for the scripture, for the emphasis here on strength in the Lord and in the power of his might. And we pray that we would know this experientially, that we would be faithful, that we would be persevering, that we would be dependent upon you. And we trust in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that what our Redeemer secured for us on the cross with his life, his death, his resurrection, he provides now the Holy Spirit to his people. We have been blessed with another comforter. We're not alone in this present evil age. So God, we pray that you would pour him out upon us as we look to the word of God, help us in our daily battle against the world, the flesh and the devil, and help us to be mindful of this whole armor of God. And may we seek by your grace to put it on, to be faithful to you and to stand in the evil day. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as we come to this particular section of Holy Scripture, the Apostle Paul basically tells us that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And this is a fitting way to sort of end this epistle. Remember, he begins in chapters 1 and 2 with the doctrine of God's saving grace. He goes back to eternity past to highlight what we call in theology the covenant of redemption. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood 
blood. We have been given the Spirit as a seal and guarantee of our final inheritance. And then he moves in chapter 2 to show the outworking of that in history. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So he moves from the doctrine of our salvation to a bit of a transition chapter in chapter 3, and then the practical section in chapters 4 to 6. Remember the emphasis in chapters 4 and 5 specifically is that we are to walk in a manner that is consistent with our high calling in the gospel of our salvation. And so as I said, this is a fitting capstone for all that has preceded. You've been saved by grace through faith. He has called you to live in a particular manner, and he wants you to do so in a way that expresses courage and faith and confidence in the risen Lord who is on your side. And this is not a unique situation in terms of the cosmic things going on in this epistle. Specifically notice in verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He reminds us that there's more to life than just the physicality, just the material things that we witness around us. He reminds us that there is a spiritual dimension there is a spiritual world. And with reference to that particular reminder, this is the dark influence, but we have been reminded previously of Christ and his place of, a, of ascended glory at the right hand of the Father. If you look back to chapter 1, specifically in verse 19, the apostle wants us to know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principles principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ has won decisively the war. There is, however, battles that the believing people of God need to face and need to deal with in this present evil age. We've already entered into that blessed state of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but it's not yet been fully consummated or realized. So life in this present age for the believer is one of warfare. It is one of combat. It is one of fighting. But as well, notice in chapter 2, specifically at verse 6, God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We might wonder how that can be the case. Well, again, positionally, we are in union with the Lord Jesus. We have been saved. But life in this present age means combat, warfare, difficulty, hardship, and affliction. And so the apostle provides for us a strategy on how we're to deal with that. So I want to look first at the necessity of the armor of God in verses 10 and 11a. Secondly, the reason for the armor of God in verses 11b and 12. And then finally, the description of the armor of God in verses 13 to 20. I realize that's a unit, but I wanted to stop at verse 17 because the next time I want to look at his uh, request to them in terms of prayer. There's two sort of elements involved in this armor of God. You've got the defensive elements, and then you've got offensive elements. And the defensive elements we'll look at tonight, perhaps getting to that first offensive element, which is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. But then that second offensive element is to pray. And I think Paul's teaching here relative to prayer is very instructive. 
instructive, so I don't want to kind of just tack it on at the end. But let's look first at the necessity of the armor of God. He gives them this command to be strong. Now, the whole section is riddled with imperatives or commands. You see, be strong in verse 10. Put on in verse 11. Take up in verse 13. Stand according to verse 14. So we're not called to a passive sort of inactivity in our Christian faith. We are called to warfare. One man says that Paul draws from the imagery of Isaiah, which depicts Yahweh and his Messiah as the divine warrior who is clothed with armor as he prepares for battle to defend and vindicate his people. There's a few passages or references in the prophet Isaiah that I think are behind Paul's admonition or exhortation here when he gets to the description of the armor. So look again with me at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Now, this is not something unique or confined to Ephesians chapter 6. You can turn back to the book of Joshua. After Deuteronomy, we find the book of Joshua. And essentially what you have is Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to the plains of Moab. And essentially, Deuteronomy is a series of exhortations God gave through Moses to the children of Israel to prepare them to enter into the promised land. So once Moses dies and Joshua takes his place, Joshua, the book, takes up the conquest. In other words, they are poised at the plains of Moab, about to enter into the promised land. And when they go into that promised land, they're supposed to vanquish their enemies. They're supposed to destroy their enemies. They're supposed to dispossess the land of all the Canaanites so that they may rightly inherit what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice specifically the command by God to Joshua in chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. He says, Be strong and of good courage. Uh, be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And when we look at that, we consider General Joshua and his campaign against the Canaanites, we say, well, that makes perfect sense. Of course he's got to be strong. Of course he has to have courage. Of course he's got to be able to go into that land and dispossess the land of the Canaanites by killing them and by breaking things. Well, when we come to that New Testament situation in Ephesians chapter 6, and the admonition to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, we mustn't forget the battle. That's why Paul does what he does in verse 12. He wants to remind us that this isn't Disneyland. This isn't, you know, a walk in the park. This isn't just a sort of a, a, a parade that we find ourselves in. There is active opposition against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we are not in that mindset, if we have not adopted that sort of wartime mentality, then we're not going to be fit. We're not going to be prepared. We're not going to be ready. But as we see in redemptive history moving along, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, something of a parallel to our passage when the apostle ends this first epistle to the church at Corinth. He tells them essentially, men and women, to act like men. 
He doesn't want women to actually become men. He doesn't want them to get rid of their pronouns, but he wants them to act like men. He wants them to be strong. He wants them to be courageous. I think it's the NASB that translates it this way. He, it says, watch, stand, fa uh, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. In the old King James, quit ye like men. In the NASB, be uh, or act like men. So again, it's not so that you ladies can, you know, bulk up and 19-inch biceps and, you know, 42-inch chests and all that sort of thing, but to be strong, to be masculine in terms of the warfare that is before us. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Sim similar emphasis by the apostle to his young ministerial companion. 2 Timothy chapter 2, specifically at verse 1. You, therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, specifically at verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So for the apostle Paul, he is not dealing with a walk in the park sort of a Christianity. He is mindful, and he writes in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He's mindful of our Lord's discourse in the upper room. Jesus says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And when the world hates you, they're going to attack you. They're going to oppose you. They're going to persecute you. There's going to be these heartaches and hardships. I think in this first world situation, we haven't always fully realized the warfare that rages around us. I think it's increasing. I think we're starting to finally realize we're sort of rubbing the, 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 the fuzz or the, 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 the haze out of our eyes and we're waking up and realizing, no, this is, uh, this is a, 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 an, antagonist, uh, an antagonistic situation that we find ourselves in. So Paul's admonition or exhortation here is perfectly appropriate. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And then notice, and in the power of his might, the strength is a strength which is in the Lord. It's not according to our own resources. It's not according to our own fitness. It's not according to our own training or our own savvy, but it is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Back to 119, we see that our blessed God is equipped with absolute, comprehensive, omnipotent power. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? So Paul's not calling upon us to do something that we cannot do. Paul is not calling upon us to just, you know, buck up, lift, uh, pull up our bootstraps and, and fight the good fight. No, he is telling us to be in dependence upon the Lord God Most High. He is telling us to walk by the Spirit. He is telling us that in this warfare, we have infinite resources at our disposal. John Eady said, soldiers have an invincible courage when they have confidence in the skill and bravery of their leader. That's the emphasis. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The psalmist says in Psalm 60, verse 12, he says, through God, we will do valiantly for it is he that will tread down our enemies. That's the mindset in which the apostle is addressing this particular command. Then notice under the necessity of the armor of God, he then states to, to, put, on the to put on that armor of God in 11a. It says, put on the whole armor of God. We just sang that panoply. It means all arms, not some arms, but all arms. Put on the whole armor of God. In other words, you don't just pick and choose. Well, I think I'll, I'll wear the helmet of salvation today. And then on Thursday, I'll wear the, I'll wear the breastplate of righteousness. And, 
you know, I'll shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace on, on Saturday. No, we're to put on the whole armor of God, realizing that if we are exposed at even the smallest point, the devil's uh, darts may find us. As Matthew Poole says, get yourselves furnished with every grace that none may be wanting in you, no part naked or exposed to your enemies. That's the emphasis of our brother. Put on the whole armor of God. The text calls us to both the defensive and the offensive elements of the armor. Can't say, well, you know, I'm going to defend myself, but I'm going to leave the offense to others. No, the same defensive elements that every Christian is to put on also entails the same offensive elements that every Christian is to put on. The text necessitates responsibility and engagement, not retreat, not cowardice, not hiding, not making or letting everybody else fight your battles or fight your fights. The specific purpose for the armor of God, the passage is not calling us to consider the intricacies of spiritual warfare. I mentioned to a few of the brethren yesterday at our Saturday morning study after the, after the fact, there was this guy, I remembered his name, Bob Larson. Some of you older folk may have heard of him before. He had this ministry, it was on the radio and it was on DVDs or cassettes or whatever was in vogue at that time. And he was about casting out demons that had inhabited Christians. Well, first of all, that's a faulty premise. No demon can inhabit a Christian. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You're not going to have a demon in the spirit residing in the same heart. But this particular fellow would put on conferences. And at these conferences, he wouldn't get big guns like Jim Renahan and Richard Barcelos to, to wax eloquent on chapter one of the Holy Scriptures. He would give you all these steps about identifying the demon that is in you, calling out that demon from you, and then negotiating terms of peace with that demon or extrication. That's not what Paul is talking about here. In fact, when you survey the New Testament, dealing with the devil is actually quite simple. Resist him and he will flee from you. Well, how do we resist him? With the defensive and offensive elements that Paul stipulates here in Ephesians chapter six. So one man, A.T. Lincoln, says to stand involves standing firm, holding one's position, resisting, not surrendering, surrendering to the opposition, but, and this is where I think we need to be encouraged, prevailing against it. So it's not just stand and hold your ground, it's stand, hold your ground, and advance. In fact, Charles Hodge says the believer has not only to defend himself, but also to attack his spiritual enemies, and the latter is as necessary to his safety as the former. In other words, if we defend ourselves, but we don't deal out blows in return, then we're going to be uh, compromised or we're going to be weakened. Both these elements, the defensive and the offensive, need to be employed for the Christian to stand, for the Christian to be strong in the might or in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then drop down next to the reason for the armor of God. Notice in verses 11b and 12, he says that, Here's why you're supposed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Here's why you need to put on the whole armor of God. That, that in the middle of verse 11, explains, provides the rationale, or gives the reason for the previous imperatives. So be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That, why do we do this, Paul? That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, the devil has a multitude of schemes that he employs. 
In fact, go back to chapter 4 in our epistle. Chapter 4, specifically at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Turn back to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul indicates something here of the, the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, specifically at verse 11. He says, lest Satan, this is in the context of forgiving a sinning member. Some suggest that it's the guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who had relations with his father's wife. Well, they excommunicated that particular fellow. He then repented and sought forgiveness. Perhaps some in the church at Corinth weren't willing to give that forgiveness. Paul says, no, give that forgiveness. Forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Because if you don't exercise forgiveness toward this man, then you may be caught up in the devil's devices. Notice in verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Notice, not of his device, he doesn't just have one singular thing that he applies or employs, but he has devices. There is a multitude of things that the devil employs to try to get at the people of God. Turn back to the Gospel of Luke, specifically Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. Notice specifically in verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. He continues with the other types of soil, and then he gives the explanation in verse 11. Now, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So in other words, the devil is active when the gospel is preached. In that case, Luke 8, specifically to prevent a sinner from coming to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But in these other texts, it seems to be the case that the devil tries to molest the people of God. And in light of that, the apostle tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, as far as the devil is concerned, good sermon by Sam Renahan, by the way, that if you want to go to sermon audio, Sam Renahan preaching through 1 Peter chapter 5 has four sermons, three or four, on, on Satan. Not a happy subject, to be sure, but a necessary subject. The way he leads into that is to say, we need to know our enemy. That doesn't mean we need to know our enemy to the depths and details that we know our God, but we need to know something about the devil in terms of his, 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 uh, uh, his machinations and his attempts to destroy us. Revelation chapter 20 tells us cosmically that the devil is bound in this present new covenant era. The reason he's bound is so that the nations are no longer kept in the dark. In other words, at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the devil was bound in the sense that now the gospel goes forth to all nations, to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation for salvation of a great multitude that no man can number. But 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil is our adversary and that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as Pastor Renahan points out, adversary there isn't neutral. Adversary isn't, you know, kind of not a real good friend. Adversary is somebody who's about destruction, your destruction. Adversary is about one that wants to hurt you. 
one that wants to take from you, one who wants to destroy you, one who wants to decimate you. So the devil roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may, whom he may devour. But again, in that context, you know what the, the antidote is? Resist him. Not go to a Bob Larson con, you know, conference, almost said concert, go to a Bob Larson conference and buy his DVD set and learn how to identify, you know, those nasty pesky demons that reside in you, call them out, dialogue with them, try to ask them, that's not it. You resist him and he will flee from you. Well, how do you resist him? By putting on the whole armor of God, by being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, by walking in dependence upon our Lord Jesus Christ by invoking the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. So the adversary roams about like a, a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as Pastor Renahan rightly reminds us, the lion of the tribe of Judah is perfectly equipped and able to destroy him and perfectly equipped and able to rebuff him. So our union with the Lord Jesus Christ is the vantage point upon which we resist the devil and his schemes to try to disrupt us. And then that brings us, in terms of the reason for the armor of God, this presence of spiritual warfare. Notice in verse 12, some passages in the New Testament are a bit difficult to wrap our minds around. This whole idea of another, another realm, Christ at the right hand of the Father. We can't see it, we can't touch it, we don't you know, experience it the way we do this material world, but it's nevertheless true. And the same thing with these forces of darkness and evil. Notice the description that he gets. He says, for, again, that's a rationale, this is a reason. So that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he draws out in more detail what the wiles of the devil look like. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now this word translated wrestle means wrestle. It also means struggle. And the particular idea is hand-to-hand -hand combat. So again, this isn't sitting on your couch, hoping that everything just sort of passes you by. You're a passive spectator at, at the warfare going on. It's kind of like when you watch a news clip about war going on in another country. It's hard to believe it because you're not there. Your house is intact. Your water is running. You've got meatloaf in the fridge. There's all kinds of things that would convince you other that there's a war, battle, a war of battle raging on. And again, I think that's the case with the Christian church at times. Everything's pretty good here in the first world. Everything's pretty nice. Meatloaf is good. Running water is delightful. Food and Costco and Walmart, all those things seem to mitigate in our minds the presence of this warfare. And if you think about it, that could be a tactic of the devil. I, I said could, because I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but lull your enemy into sleep. Lull your enemy into a false sense of security. Lull your enemy into that place of, of contentedness with his, his surroundings, his immediate cares are, are, are satisfied, so that he doesn't concern himself with the, way, uh, the warfare that is, waging, uh, that is being waged. So notice, with reference to this idea, I want to just encourage us. The instruction is given to promote combat, not fear. When Paul says what Paul says in verse 12, it's not to produce in you cowardice. It's not to produce in you uh, uh, retreat. He's already said the opposite. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. 
be odd if he gives you verse 12 to scare you out of the fight. No, what verse 12 does is that it calls us to engage the enemy. The instruction is given to, to promote combat and not fear. John Calvin says he describes our enemy as formidable, not to overwhelm us with fear, but to quicken our diligence and earnestness. By speaking of the power of the enemy, Paul labors to keep us more alert. That's why he's doing what he's doing. I would suggest secondly under verse 12, the instruction is given in order to help us understand the enemy. He's not flesh and blood according to verse 12. However, he oftentimes utilizes flesh and blood to carry out his particular devices or schemes. Think Jesus in the Gospel of John in John chapter 8. Those religious leaders, those unbelieving Jews, they wanted to kill our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ says, but I'm I've descended from Abraham. And they say, well, we're Abraham's sons. And what is Jesus' logic? Well, if you were Abraham's sons, you wouldn't want to kill me. And then Jesus moves from Abraham, Father Abraham, to Father God. And he mentions, or Jesus says that he's from God. And then they mock him. We were not born of fornication. We're, we're of God. And it's on the heels of that that Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So what does that indicate? The power behind those unbelieving Jews is the devil himself. When they engage in this attempt to murder our Lord Jesus, when they engage in their deception and their lies, what's happening there? Yes, the devil is behind the scenes, but these men of flesh and blood are carrying out his devices. So again, I'm not suggesting every possible person out there is animated by the devil and is only there to get you. But brethren, there is the reality that the devil is out there and he is trying to get us. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out trying to get you. Never forget that, brethren. There is a warfare raging on, and Paul the Apostle wants us to be mindful of that. I would suggest, thirdly, the instruction is given to underscore the spiritual nature of the enemy. Again, verse 12, for we do not wrestle, we do not struggle against, we don't, do not engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If he indicates that the primary emphasis in terms of our enemy is spiritual in nature, then it necessarily follows that the means by which we deal the means by which we undergo combat, the means by which we engage in warfare is spiritual as well. Now again, this is the church. This doesn't mitigate against armies. This doesn't mitigate against national defense. This doesn't mitigate against arms being taken up against foreign invaders. But in terms of the church, our calling is not to take up arms, physical arms, to advance the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at 2 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, the apostle underscores the spiritual nature of our weaponry. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, specifically at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, means they're not guns, they're not tanks, they're not helicopters, they're not, you know, uh, uh, rockets. But again, brethren, Paul's not arguing for no f defense in a nation. We do this, right? We read passages like this. Well, the government shouldn't rebuff those foreign invaders. Yes, they should. 
They've been given the sword according to Romans 13. There's stuff for the government, and then there's stuff for the church, and then there's stuff for the family, and then there's stuff for the individual. Oftentimes there's overlap, but oftentimes there's distinction in terms of calling under the lordship of our blessed savior. So the church's prerogative is not to take up arms to advance the crown. We are rather to engage in the weapons that are consistent with our high calling in the gospel. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So back to our text, the fourth observation I want to make from verse 12 is that the description given should cause the reader to consider the power of his Lord. In other words, when you read verse 12, I think it's commonplace as well, at least in some branches of Christianity, to be overly concerned with the devil to be overly concerned, uh, consumed with the spirit, you know, the spirit world and the dark in, uh, forces that are at war with us, and to be consumed with that in a way that's not godly, in a way that sort of lowers the, the glorious reign of our Savior. Again, Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, Christ has a name that is above every name. Over all principality, over all power, over all spiritual forces, our blessed Savior has primacy. And so what we are called upon here to be strong and uh, in the Lord and to be uh, in the, in the, and in the power of his might and to put on the whole armor of God, we do that because of the wiles of the devil. We do that because of these unseen forces. And then that brings us thirdly to the description of the armor. John Calvin makes this note. He says, now follows a description of the arms which they were enjoined to wear. We must not, however, inquire very minutely into the meaning of each word, for an allusion to military customs is all that was intended. Now, Calvin lived before William Gurnall. William Gurnall wrote a book in 1662 is when it was first published, and it's called The Christian in Complete Armor. That book is 1,240 pages. So I think Calvin is kind of saying, don't do that. Now, having said that, Gurnall is a wealth of practical, wonderful, Puritan, uh, puritanical goodness. If you can get Gurnall, you're going to be happy. And they, they have smaller editions, three-volume sets and in paperback. But the Big Daddy, by Banner of Truth, 1,240 pages. I, he goes into every jot and tittle of every possible meaning that there could ever conceivably be about each part of these defensive elements. So, so Calvin's caution is you don't need to go hog wild. You need to understand the military or the martial imagery that is sort of behind the scenes or that is being invoked here. And this isn't the only place that Paul gets martial or military. He does it in Romans 13, 12, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. We already read 1 Timothy 1, 18, and then 2 Timothy chapter 2. Not only the command to be strong, but the illustration of the soldier in verses 3 and 4. Why do you think Paul did that? Because the Romans had quite a robust army. You didn't maintain the Pax Romana by just asking everybody not to mess with you. You maintain the Pax Romana with a heavy hand, with an iron fist, with lots of weapons. 
So it was quite common to see Roman soldiers. In fact, Jesus invokes that example when he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're sort of uh, uh, called upon to carry a, a soldier's load for a mile, go ahead and carry it for two miles. So this was a reality. John the Baptist, in his preaching there in the wilderness of Judea, addressed soldiers. Cornelius was a soldier, a, a, a commander, a centurion. The, the Bible does not look disfavorably at military. The Bible doesn't condemn military. The Bible doesn't commend passivity. The Bible commands, again, governments and, and body politics having militaries to defend from invasion. In terms of the church, he uses the analogy to show what we're up against so that we'll take it seriously and that we will not just lay back passively and watch the world go by. No, we need to stand. We need to advance. We need to persevere. We need to engage in martial combat with our spiritual enemies. So notice then, specifically in verses 13 and following, he reiterates the command. He gives it in verses 10 and 11a, gives the rationale or justification or reason in 11b and 12. And then notice in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So because we have this reason in 11b and 12, we have the first exhortation, and then he returns to that exhortation. Why? Because it's so essential, because it's so important, because it is monumental for your health and your strength and your ability to conduct yourself in this present evil age. Notice the timing. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Remember in chapter 5, verse 15, see that, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Matthew Poole says, these are times of temptation and Satan's greatest rage. In other words, be prepared and be ready. It's always good to be prepared, isn't it? This isn't a shout out to the Boy Scouts, but it is good to be prepared. You don't wait till you're under attack to try to find your armor. You don't wait till the bullets are whizzing by your head to say, you know, I should probably fetch that helmet out of my closet and put it on my noggin. No, it's better to be prepared. That's what the apostle is saying. Not every single day in the Christian life is constant, earnest, fiery warfare. You probably had a nap today. That's not warfare. That's fun. That's good. That's relaxing. The Lord is good. He gives us the Sabbath to rest. We rest spiritually. Sometimes we get a bit of a physical nap as well. And it's quite a blessing that our God gives us. But if we're not prepared, if we're not ready, if we're not standing, then we're going to be mowed down when the bullets start flying around us. And then he stipulates once again the purpose, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's the goal. That's the emphasis. That's what the apostle wants. We're to watch. We're to pray. We're to fight. We're to persevere. We're to endure. We're to go forward in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of his Holy Spirit. And then he gets specifically to the defensive elements in verses 14 to 17a. But again, verse 14, it's almost like he's obsessed with this theme. Stand, therefore. He must view that threat in verses 11b and 12 to be real, to be a potential difficulty for the life of God's people and God's church. 
He must envisage in terms of history that these forces of darkness are moving men in such a way that there will be times of serious opposition and serious persecution against the church of the Lord Jesus. What do you think might feed into that? Well, it could be perhaps he's sitting in a Roman jail. He's in prison because unbelieving Jews turned him over to the civil state and the civil state essentially didn't want to deal with him, didn't want to release him, but they then put him away. So from AD 60 to 62, Paul's sitting in a jail. So the concept and the reality and the idea that persecution and opposition are real was very real to the apostle Paul. Hence the emphasis to his readership that they need to stand, that they need to be strong. They need to put on that whole armor of God. They need to be ready. They need to defend. They need to be able to engage in an offensive. And then the specifics. Notice first, having girded your waist with truth. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Over the last, I don't know, decade, two decades, three decades, anybody that's worked out in gyms knows that there's been this strong emphasis on the core. Everybody needs a strong core. I mean, back in the day, we just lifted weights, didn't think much about the core. We thought, didn't even know about the core. Figured squats would take care of that. Deadlifts would help out. That'd be great. There's been this emphasis on the core. Why is that? Because you need to be sturdy. You need to be stable. You need to be strong. When you're in you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat with somebody else, if you're easy to be rocked, you're easy to be knocked, you're easy to be shaken, you're not going to be able to stand. And what is it that is the, 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 the girding with? It's truth. If we're going to resist the wiles of the devil, it's not going to be our experience it's not going to be our feelings. It's not going to be our emotions. It's not going to be our, our, our warm fuzzies. It is the truth of God's holy word that we need to, to gird our waists with in order to withstand in the evil day. In order to combat the liar himself and all of his minions that work by deception, what is the church to employ to rebuff that, to resist that, and to withstand that? It's the truth. We saw that this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are certain emphases that we need to bring home when it comes to that statement and this one. The church is not to compromise the truth in an otherwise weakened ecclesiastical state. In other words, when the time comes that men will not endure sound doctrine, but men rather want to gather up teachers that'll, that'll scratch their itching ears, what's the faithful church to do? Preach the word. We're not to compromise the word of truth when, an, when a godless world wants to come and attack. Oh, we're going to invoke Bill 367, as I understand, those kinds of privately entered bills don't always get the traction that they, they, they perhaps otherwise would, but that there are, you know, government officials out there wanting to restrict our ability to preach the gospel of John. Brethren, this wouldn't be the first time the gospel of John has been accused of anti-Semitism. This is a long-held charge. When Jesus condemns the Jews, how do you think the Jews respond to that? Well, he's an anti-Semite. That's particularly what this legislation is calculated against. So what do we do? Do we not preach John? Do we avoid John chapter 8? Do we say, no, we can't deal with that text because it's kind of provocative and it might make our overlords upset? No, that's not the response. We gird our waists with truth. We stand fast on the one who identifies himself as the way, the truth, and the life. 
we need to be faithful relative to the truth of God's holy word. Notice secondly, we've got the core taken care of. Now notice, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Where do you think the, the arrows of the devil are going to go? Center mass. If you've ever been taught to shoot, you shoot for center mass. That's just part of the instruction. You shoot or aim for center mass. Why? Because you want to stop that individual. This isn't unique to the good guys. The bad guys know this rule as well. And so, of course, when the devil launches tar uh, arrows, where do you think he's going? He's going for center mass. He's going to try and kill you. He's going to try and destroy you. So notice what he says. We've got the, the waist girded with truth. Now we put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? Does that mean our goodness, our rightness, our lawfulness, our merit, our obedience? Listen to John Gill. In an allusion to Isaiah 59, 17, meaning not works of righteousness done by men, Though these are offense when rightly used against the reproaches and charges of the enemy, as they were by Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 3, but rather the graces of faith and love, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Though faith has another place in the Christian armor afterwards mentioned, wherefore it seems best to understand. Where do you think Gill's going to go? When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, you think John Gill's going to say, that's your goodness, that's your obedience. That's your uprightness by which you'll rebuff the darts of the devil. That's not where Gil goes. Wherefore, it seems best to understand this of the righteousness of Christ, which being imputed by God and received by faith is a guard against and repels the accusations and charges of Satan and is a security from all wrath and condemnation. So we've got the waist girt with truth, uh, with truth, then we've got this breastplate of righteousness, and then notice the feet uh, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I read before where one of the big issues in the Vietnam War for US soldiers was jungle rot. You go trancing around jungles and you don't have good footwear and good socks. See, this is something we just really take for granted, don't we? We can get good shoes, good, good socks. But that's not always been the way life is. There hasn't always been Costco's. There hasn't always been Amazon.ca. Honey, I, I need some new socks. Well, you can go to Costco and you know, buy, the, the, buy them by the pile. Or you can you know, just log on to Amazon and get them that afternoon. Footwear is very important. Footwear in combat, very important. Jungle rot, no bueno. You're not going to go out and fight Charlie when your feet are bleeding, when your feet are deteriorating, and when you are in agony. And so the apostle, again, knowing the Roman soldier, having seen them in his day-to-day -day life, seeing what they wore in terms of their, you know, uh, uh, constant emphasis on the, the peace of Rome and on the vanquishment of their enemies, he saw them. He witnessed this, he understood this. So he draws the analogy from physical military life and brings it into the spiritual world. So with reference to the gospel, or rather with reference to the feet, notice, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Remember, what is the primary emphasis in terms of the imperatives in the, in the section? We're to stand. 
We're to stand. We're to stand. You're not going to stand if your feet are not standable. And if you do not take that gospel of peace, which is the power of God most high, you're not going to be any good when it comes to dealing with the threat posed by the wiles of the devil, 11b, and those myriad of forces, according to verse 12. You've got to make sure the waist has truth. You've got to make sure that breastplate of righteousness is in place. You've got to make sure those feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then fourthly, notice the shield of faith. Above all, some commentators suggested above all may not be the best translation. It's not like this is the primary one. As I said before, it's a unit. The Roman soldier walking down the road that they built that lasted even till our own day, uh, that Roman soldier didn't have part of his armament on. That Roman soldier was ready to go. I mean, again, it wasn't like, you know, life now where we have early warning systems, we have radar, we got all kinds of things to detect enemy invasion. That wasn't the way it always was. I'm, I'm sure it was a little bit more robust than I'm suggesting here, but th these ready or these soldiers were ready to go. And so notice that they have this shield of faith, verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So I mentioned earlier, stand, but progress. The devil isn't just standing. He's not just maintaining. He's not content with you just where you're at. He wants to mow you over. There's repetitive darts coming your way. And these are the darts that are flaming. You know, the, the, the modern flamethrower, it's a horrific thing to throw flames at an enemy. Can you imagine that? Throwing flames at another human being. Well, this wasn't a, a brand new invention. The Romans did that. You dip the arrow in, in fire and, and throw flame at your enemy. So the apostle tells us that that's what the devil is going to do. You better make sure you've got that armor or, or that, that shield. You've got to be able to cover your vitals. The necessity of faith in Christ and faith in the promises of God are most essential. Listen to Hodge. This is a bit of a longer quote, but I think he gets at it. He says, as burning arrows not only pierced, but set on fire what they pierced, they were doubly dangerous. Think about that. It's bad enough to get hit by an arrow, I would imagine, but a flaming arrow so that once it enters into your body, it then burns your body. I think Hodge is right. They were doubly dangerous. They serve here, therefore, as the symbol of the fierce onslaughts of Satan. He showers arrows of fire on the soul of the believer, who, if unprotected by the shield of faith, would soon perish. It is a common experience of the people of God that at times horrible thoughts, unholy, blasphemous, skeptical, malignant, crowd upon the mind, which cannot be accounted for on any ordinary law of mental action and which cannot be dislodged. I mean, brethren, it's in our wheelhouse to have some pretty wicked thoughts. Well, I shouldn't project. It's in my wheelhouse to have some pretty wicked thoughts. But once in a while, a thought comes along. And it's like, where did that come from? Like, does everybody's looking at me puzzled. Maybe I'm, I'm outing myself here. Does anybody else ever have that? You, no, you don't need to raise your hand. But, but there are those times where things come into your head. It's like, where did that come from? I think that's what Hodge is speaking to. He says, they stick like burning arrows and fill the soul with agony. They can be quenched only by faith, by calling on Christ for help. 
Again, it's not the strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith. That shield of faith is the connection you have, the union to our blessed Savior and Lord. He says, these, however, are not the only kind of fiery darts, nor are they the most dangerous. There are others which enkindle passion, passion, inflame ambition, excite cupidity, pride, discontent, or vanity, producing a flame which our deceitful heart is not so prompt to extinguish, and which is often allowed to burn until it produces great injury or even destruction. Against these most dangerous weapons of the evil one, the only protection is faith. It is only by looking to Christ and earnestly invoking his interposition on our behalf that we can resist these assaults which inflame evil without the warning of pain. It's a great reminder, brethren. And again, you can read Gurnall. I think that's a great endeavor, all 1,200 pages. But you're going to have to come to grips with what Paul is saying here in a very simple way is make sure you've got truth on your waist, righteousness on your chest, make sure that your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and make sure you got that shield. Because when you go into combat, you don't want to be there without that shield. Because those darts are flaming, those darts are fiery, those darts are coming for you. And if you don't look unto the Lord Jesus Christ with faith, if you're not invoking his power in your life, then you're going to be mowed over in the day of evil. And then the last element in terms of the defense is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Again, you wouldn't go into battle without a helmet on. It, it's just not, it, it's unthinkable. You know, in, in military settings, they usually, you know, uh, inspect troops before they, they go on duty. And what do you think they're inspecting the troops for? Do you have your helmet? Do you have your, you know, breastplate? Do you have your, your, your shoes? They're, they're looking at you. They're giving you the once over. They're making sure that you're ready so that when they send you out there, you're fit and prepared and ready to stand. But this helmet of salvation is absolutely crucial. Why? Because without our heads, we are going to succumb. Do you notice a constant emphasis and refrain and, and, and specific uh, 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 amplification of truth, faith, understanding, knowing Jesus as the source of our strength? We need that helmet to protect our heads so that we are not mowed down in battle. Turn to Romans chapter 12. We'll take up the offensive elements next time. So we're just about finished. Look at, look at Romans chapter 12. Verse 1, this is where Paul gets practical. In Ephesians, we've got doctrine, Ephesians 1 and 2, transition, chapter 3, practical, 4 to 6. Romans, you've got doctrine from chapters 1 to 11, and then from chapters 12 to 16, you've got practical application. Paul has a pattern. Paul has a way about him. And notice in chapter 12 at verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I think at times we sacrifice the mind in our Christianity for the heart. But you know what? The Bible doesn't make the distinction that we do. It doesn't say the, the head knowledge and the heart knowledge are two different things. Head and heart are all part of the immaterial. Head and heart are oftentimes used synonymously in Scripture. The apostle says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
when you hear that, it sounds a bit paradoxical. Well, I don't want to be conformed to this world, so I, I shouldn't go to that place. I shouldn't go there. I shouldn't do this. Mm, yeah, that, that might follow, but the first order of business is the renewal of your mind. So you spent, let's say you were converted at 25. You spent 25 years until the day you were converted <coughs> thinking worldly things, thinking godless thoughts, <coughs> being oriented only to this world. So what happens when you're converted? All things are new. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't immediately mean your intellect has been radically transformed. You have a different perspective, a different orientation. You have a different view on things. But what do you got to do? You got to kind of get out that old stuff and put in new stuff. It's kind of like when Israel goes into the promised land. You got to get rid of those Canaanites and then you take the land. That's what God says through his apostle. And so this helmet of salvation is absolutely crucial. We need doctrine. We need understanding. We need the truth so that we are protected at those vital elements of our lives. And so those are the defensive elements. God willing, next time we'll look at the two offensive elements, the word of God and the necessity of prayer. Just want to close by saying there is a necessity to stand in this passage. The believer must stand in the Lord. That, I think, is settled. The believer must stand in the Lord with the Lord's provision. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then that power of his might is then conveyed to us via these particular means. Truth, righteousness, gospel, all those things. Faith are absolutely crucial. That's what it means to stand in the power of his might. It is to take the armor of God that he gives to his children and employ those for his glory. The believer must realize that the Lord will give. I mean, this is another great thing in terms of the provision. He gives and promises to give to all those who ask. Isn't that Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. That's the promise of God Most High. In the Lucan account, the Lord Jesus argues from that to say, if you then, being evil, love to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Remember that condemnation from James? He says, you have not because you ask not. Maybe we're getting our clocks cleaned in the spiritual battle because we're lazy and we're apathetic, and we're not employing the whole armor of God, and we're not invoking his presence, and we're not expressing our faith and dependence upon him. See, again, it's not magic, it's not esoteric, it's not Bob Larson-ism, where you gotta figure out who the demon is, you gotta identify the demon, you gotta name the demon, gotta call the demon out, and then try to you know, negotiate terms with it. It's none of that, resist him. How do you resist him? By putting on the whole armor of God. The reality of spiritual warfare, it attacks us at every level. The temptation to love the world is a spiritual battle. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Why do you think Paul issues that command? Because there is that remaining corruption, because there is that desire to gravitate back to those things. The temptation to love money is a spiritual battle. Matthew chapter 6, can't love or serve God and mammon. It's not saying don't ever have money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. That can be a spiritual battle. The temptation to engage in sexual immorality is a spiritual battle. One text here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice how Peter frames his admonition to avoid sexual immorality. 
1 Peter chapter 2, he sees it in the real world. He sees it in the light of all that is true. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Fleshly lusts war against the soul. Fleshly lusts have a spiritual element. Fleshly lusts destroy. They're fiery darts that are not calculated to help you, to promote good in you, and to cause you to be healthy and well-balanced. No, it's simply there like a burning arrow to penetrate your flesh and then to turn on the heat. So there are these battles in the love of world, love of money, sexual immorality. Notice as well where Paul locates this admonition. Now, it does cap off the entirety of the epistle, but it comes right after household code. In other words, do you think the devil's going to try to disrupt a Christian marriage? Do you think a devil, the devil's going to try to disrupt Christians' uh, parents and their children? Yes, he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if you're not girded up, if you're not fully armored, if you're not ready to fight and ready to battle, you're going to be easy prey when it comes to these particular things. And then as well, the temptation to destroy church relationships is a spiritual battle also. Remember chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God abominates, according to Proverbs 6, that one who sows discord among the brethren. So there's all these places or all these sort of arenas or theaters where there can be this spiritual battle. And so the marching orders from the apostle is to put on that whole armor, to be ready to withstand in the evil day, to be ready to defend, to be ready to give an offense in terms of the, the, the scriptures and in terms of prayer. And then the use of the means, the truth of God's word, the righteousness of Christ, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and the necessity of prayer. You put those things on, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say all your troubles are going to go away, but you're going to be able by God's grace to withstand in the evil day. Well, may God take these things and may he impress them upon our hearts that we may faithfully go forward in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. And if you're not a believer here tonight, the way to receive this armor is to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Without faith in him, you are open to all of the machinations and all of the evil and all of the fiery darts of the devil himself. So believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this comprehensive look at a soldier of Christ. Help us, God, to take these things seriously. Help us, God, to put on that whole armor of God to, to stand and to withstand in the evil day. I pray that you would look with favor upon each of the families, each of the individuals, and this church as a whole. Grant us grace in this present generation to shine as lights and give us boldness to hold forth that word of truth. And we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.